Hi, this is just a quick disclaimer before your regularly scheduled episode, but the hosts of the Marion Direct are not certified experts in the fields that we talk about. We are, however, two sleep-deprived college students about to go into finals with an amateur interest in politics and foreign politics. So when we talk about issues like the Israel-Hamas war and American politics, please do note that what we say are our own opinions, but that we're trying to get as close to the actual truth as possible. Thank you, and have a good time listening. Hello and welcome to the Marion Direct, a podcast that breaks down the news for Marion students by Marion students. I'm your host, Miguel Spotting Price. And I'm Sean Efron. And we're here today to talk about, as you may have guessed if you listened to the last couple episodes of this podcast, the Israel-Hamas war again. And this particular time, we're here to talk about how it stopped for just a little bit of time. So we're recording this on December 7th. You'll probably see this sometime in the week following December 7th. And if you hadn't been aware, a week ago for us, a ceasefire between Israel and Hamas ended in the Gaza Strip with both sides resuming hostilities. This is pretty amazing because, as pointed out by Reuters, no one really expected these two sides to be able to reach a ceasefire at all, even if it was for the short, short period of six days. This ceasefire was intended to give both sides the chance to rest a little bit and was designed to push both sides to release hostages that they had under their control, with that being a major concern, largely of Israel and a number of other countries who have citizens held hostage by Hamas. Amongst other people, several Thai citizens actually and other foreign nationals were released by the Hamas government during the brief ceasefire, which lasted unfortunately only about six days. As per the terms of the negotiation, both sides were to release prisoners on Israel's side or hostages on Hamas's side every single day that the truce occurred, with Hamas pledging to release at least 10 hostages every single day. During the course of the truce, according to the Associated Press, there was an agreement for at least 10 Israelis a day to be released in exchange for 30 Palestinians a day. The end result was a total of approximately 81 Israelis and another 24 hostages consisting of 23 Thais and one Filipino being released, most of them women and children, a few men as well. Eventually, however, both sides accused the other of breaking the terms of the ceasefire, combat ensued, and we are now back where we started. Thankfully, there are less civilians being held hostage now in the Gaza Strip. That said, there still are hostages because news organizations like Reuters were estimating that roughly 240 people were taken hostage by Hamas and other militant groups in the Gaza Strip. And one of the issues that Hamas had in extending this ceasefire was that they weren't the only group involved in the October 7th attack and they weren't the only group that took hostages. So in many cases, they had to try and find hostages from other groups involved in the attack to try and get them released. So it was a difficult situation for them trying to extend the ceasefire and would have been difficult to continue indefinitely even if they had wanted to. Now, however, as combat continues, pressure is increasing on both sides. Moss is claiming approximately 17,000 deaths. It does not distinguish civilian from combatant, but heavily implies that the majority of them are civilians. Meanwhile, the U.S. is putting more pressure upon the government in Tel Aviv to prevent civilian casualties, now actually initiating travel restrictions against Israeli settlers in the West Bank who have prosecuted violence against the Palestinian natives. This is rather interesting because, as we mentioned a few podcast episodes ago, 
The area that we typically call Palestine is two largely distinct land areas, namely the Gaza Strip and the West Bank. While Israel isn't supposed to be encroaching on the West Bank, it being territory under the control of the Palestinian Authority, they have been encouraging settlers to move into West Bank territory, sometimes rather forcefully. So it's interesting to see foreign countries take a stand on what many consider to be Israeli encroachment on lands that aren't theirs. This is, again, a continuation of what we discussed in one of our earlier podcasts, in which the Camp David Accords agreed to allow the West Bank to be a separate piece of territory. But there is a movement, especially under the leadership of the far-right government of Bibi Netanyahu, that believes that this territory is rightfully Israeli. We are not going to take a side on that issue. We are not going to give you a moral analysis. That is just the current sort of political situation in the region. That said, the current political situation in the region is rather interesting because the ceasefire that no one really expected to actually go as well as it did was negotiated by, if you can believe it, the Qatari government, who are very much not on Israel's side at all in this fight and very much don't like what Israel has been doing. But they still uh, took the steps to step in as the negotiator between Israel and Hamas. At Saudi Arabia, a nation typically extremely hostile to Israel, though they have been moving towards normalizing relations, has criticized both Israel and Hamas, notably in recent press statements, essentially indicating that while Israel may be surrounded by almost exclusively Arab countries, these Arab countries, even if they don't like Israel as a whole, are willing to work with Israel and are willing to serve as more neutral middle grounds between these two conflicting sides of Israel and Hamas. When push comes to shove, there has been an overall movement amongst the Arab states towards normalization of relations with Israel and potentially some stabilization. I'm going to emphasize some stabilization of the region. That being said, of course, the Hamas attacks were targeted with the intention of destabilizing that, of continuing the aggression partially on ethnic lines between Israeli and Arab groups in the Middle East. It's a significant, I guess, gesture that these Arab countries are still attempting to maintain the peace and are attempting to continue this diplomatic solution to what for decades, since about 1947, has been a primarily armed conflict. That said, the Israel-Hamas conflict isn't the only one that has been going on for decades. There have been other long-brewing tensions that have been going on in our world today, notably uh, tensions between nations such as the UK, and Russia. Russia has been accused repeatedly of taking certain intelligence actions on United Kingdom territory, most specifically involving multiple murders of Russian defectors on UK soil, including one which poisoned several civilians alongside the target. Now, the United Kingdom is openly accusing the FSB, Russia's replacement for the KGB in the modern era, of a concentrated hacking campaign against the United Kingdom's government with the intention of destabilizing British democracy. You might find accusations that Russia has been hacking into secure government data a bit of old hat if you're living in America, but this is actually a pretty new accusation for Britain. Despite the fact that, according to British intelligence services, these Russian hacking operations have been continuing since as early as 2015, it also marks a rather distinct change with Western relations with Russia since the 1990s. After the fall of the Berlin Wall, the dissolution of the Soviet Union, and the establishment of the Russian Federation as a supposed republic, there was a sense that relations could potentially normalize. There were even 
rather fantastical and never coming to fruition, talks of adding Russia to NATO. This was a very briefly held sentiment. It was considered a genuine possibility back in the 1990s. However, things have ramped up again between Russia and the West, especially in the face of the war in Ukraine, beginning with the 2014 annexation of Crimea, and even before then with Russian interference in Ukrainian elections. This increased tension between the West and Russia is actually rather reminiscent of the Cold War. The last time open accusations were made of this sort was during the Cold War, when intelligence was in a full-fledged competition between the Western world and Russia. That's a very good point because while there were hopes at the start of even Putin's presidency that he would be able to work with Western countries as a democratically elected leader, it's important to note as well that he was the head of the FSB for a long period of time in the 1990s. So these tactics would be more or less in line with stuff that he's already done in the past. Indeed, and uh, before then, you know, he was with the... KGB, which during the late 1950s, I believe, Nomward had an entire section devoted to disinformation and political warfare, so spying on hostile nations and trying to break up their political unity. Uh, Thomas Ridd has a book called Active Measures in which he addresses this rather directly. There's a history in the East and West of trying to break up governmental function by stealing documents, often leaking them with modifications or in certain contexts to make those governments lose face. In this case, Russia is continuing that uh, tradition rather dramatically with an eight-year hacking campaign. And the UK's willingness to publicly state that this has been happening, and even go into detail about some of the strategies used, including false email addresses claiming to be trusted contacts, the use of malicious links, etc., it indicates either an intention to condemn Russia or to try to get ahead of this before potentially something is leaked. It is important to note that while Russia may be having issues in terms of technological and military development, with the war in Ukraine demonstrating that their military is a little bit behind modern times, that they are still incredibly effective and incredibly ruthless diplomatic employer of subterfuge and spying in general. Putin has had a long, long history going back to his FSB and KGB days of employing espionage tactics, and it's pretty clear from these accusations leveled against Russia that they haven't died out. So, while Russia may be slipping off a bit in terms of scientific achievements, they're still incredibly powerful on the global scale just from their ability to leverage their political might as well as their efforts and capabilities at spying. I'm sure that all of this is going to be quite encouraging to the few remaining cold warriors, as they were called, who have been pigeonholed in recent years. But we have some issues with military actually arising on our own soil, particularly related not to a cold war, but to a culture war. If you haven't been aware, there has been one senator, Mr. Tommy Tuberville of Alabama, who has been blocking promotions for military officials for the last 10 months. What Tommy Tuberville was actually doing was he was on the Senate Confirmation Committee, which has to confirm the promotions of high-ranking military officials, which makes sense because you want people outside of the military to know who's in the military and to make sure that you guys didn't overlook something that a normal person, as normal as a senator may be, wouldn't overlook. But when the Senate starts using this requirement that promotions have to be confirmed to start enforcing political agendas, people start to get a bit annoyed. 
In Tommy Tourville's case, 10 months ago, he started blocking promotions after the military introduced a policy that would reimburse female members of the military for travel costs required to get an abortion. He disagreed with this, and as a result, he declared he would block military promotions until the military lifted this policy. Needless to say, this ruffled a great number of feathers in the defense community and the wider political community, with many arguing, of course, that while this political issue may be important to Senator Tuberville, it is not one to be enforced in this manner, that he is effectively holding promotions as political hostages. It should be noted that with this release of promotions, he has released all promotions that were three-star general rank and below, or Officer 9 pay scale, which includes general officers who would be commanding units as large as 45,000 men. These are very important individuals who are being blocked from fulfilling the necessary roles that they were asked to step into. Most notably, it's left the Marines, one of the most notable and accomplished U.S. fighting forces, without a commander-in-chief for months. This has been an, a political nightmare even for people who agree with Senator Tuberville on issues relating to abortion. Needless to say, Tuberville's actions have managed to anger not only Democrats, but members of his own party. Regardless of your stance on the rather controversial issue of abortion, it is generally agreed that holding the effectiveness of the United States military effectively hostage in the face of a political issue is not a wise movement. Multiple Republicans, including Nikki Haley, have been rather direct about saying that Senator Tuberville is not acting in the best interest of the country. That said, as political magazines like The Week have noted for the last couple weeks, there have been many Republicans who, even if they may not directly criticize Senator Tuberville in public, are trying to work with him behind closed doors in efforts to try and get him to drop this military promotion ban. Most notably because the reason he actually had to drop it just this week was because the Democrats in the Senate were about to circumvent him entirely and get the military promotions through without his approval. So he had no choice but to drop his ban. The reason for this is that Tuberville ticked off enough Republicans that enough were willing to side with the Democrats in order to get to this circumventing legislation passed. So Senator Tuberville held up 425 military promotions for, at this point, effectively nothing. Effectively, Tuberville's political statement in his blocking of these promotions was useless. It did not invoke any changes in legislation. It did not even bring his own party to his support. But it is a reflection of the wider tendency in recent years for individual political issues to become melded with necessary legislation. We've seen this countless times with health care acts, government budget blockades, the multiple shutdowns of our entire government because various groups have attempted to put unrelated clauses into documents on issues like budget or promotion, which will then create dispute, not over the actual budget or actual lobbying passed, but over the subclauses related to issues that do not need to be placed in these documents. If we look back to issues, even with Kevin McCarthy's speakership in the House of Representatives, we can see in the absolute pain it was to get Kevin McCarthy into speakership and the ouster vote that led to him being removed from the Speaker of the House position, that the wings on either side of the aisle for politics are starting to get more and more power as political polarization gets worse in governing bodies like the House of Representatives and the Senate. 
In the House of Representatives, only eight Republicans were able to enforce their will on the over 200 other Republicans in the House of Representatives because they weren't satisfied with what had been going on in their party. These eight Republicans were able to have a massively distorted impact on the rest of their party. And that is incredibly similar to what Tony Tuberville is doing. His blockade has caused massive security issues for our nation as a whole. As such, what we're seeing in American politics today is largely an empowering of the wings on either side of the aisle. The Direct by Nature is a commentary piece. While we try to maintain a level-headed view and sometimes we even say things that are not necessarily in line with our opinions to try to be as close to a level-headed view as possible, it's concerning that the United States government has been continuing to focus more upon partisan issues than upon the actual administration of governance. The nation was founded upon liberal democratic principles which stated the purpose of a government was to, in return for the sacrifice of a few liberties, protect the greater liberty and security of the people. Now it often seems that the purpose of government is simply to protect the personal agendas of individual politicians. We have to consider that, once again, if we are a democracy, that we should be having democratic debate, that we should be having discussion, that disagreements are going to happen and we have to learn to work through them. If the entire nation, if the House of Representatives, if the Senate, if the military can be held up by the will of just a few people, then we are bypassing the principles of our democratic republic that our country is founded on. And we are not making the situation better for ourselves or even better for the issues that we support by attempting to enforce our will on others and bypass things like discussion through mutual agreement and concessions. Because if one person can enforce their will on the nation through holding national security as a hostage, there's nothing stopping the next person to hold his position from doing the same things for pro-choice policies. And I think we have reached the appropriate dose of opinions from your hosts today. <laughs> now that we've given you a wonderful little diatribe on the proper function of government and democracy. Thank you very much for tuning in this week. I'm Miguel Sporting Price. I'm Sean Efron. Signing off for now.